Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. Um, it's good to interact with you, at least through video, although it's odd. I, ha I have learned three lessons um, during this time so far. I, probably more, but at, but at least three. With regard to just videoing these sermons, um, I thought I'd share with you. One, one is perspective, the second is mannerism, and the third is audience. And what do I mean by that? Uh, first, uh, perspective. I notice the camera gives a different perspective on things. So that when I'm preaching, as I'm watching myself on videos, I'm sure you're watching me. When I stick my hand out like this, it looks like I've got a gigantic hand. And, and it looks freakishly large and, and awkward. And it's really not. I, it looks like I have some kind of a gorilla hand of some sort. But it, it's really not. It's just a regular size hand. It's just the, the issue of perspective on the camera. Second, mannerism. Mikey has always teased me that I unintentionally do finger guns, like this kind of thing. I have never noticed that until I watched the video that I do, in fact, do this. I don't know what I'm doing. It's like stick them up or I don't know what's going on. Am I going to gun down the heretics? I'm not sure. But I do it. And so I've noticed these mannerisms. And third, um, audience. It isn't the same preaching the word without you present. Um, I've noticed in preaching that there is an exchange that happens between the preacher and the audience, um, the congregation, really. Um, that's quite important that you as re you receive the word and I as I preach the word, we're, we're actually doing this in some sense together. And I suppose I drive at these three things to, to essentially say during a crazy time, um, that I miss you, and our elders and deacons miss you, and I'm certain that you miss one another, and we can't wait for this time to be over. With that said, if you will, look with me at Hebrews chapter 7, and, and while you're turning to Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to start reading in verse 20. While you're turning there, I want to remind you that um, tonight we will have a Zoom meeting, a beginning uh, going through the last week of the life of Christ each day. Um, so hopefully you get the email for that and pay attention. So Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 20, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continu continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues. Consequently, continues forever, sorry. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word together, 
as we hear what the head of the church, Christ, says to his church by his spirit through the superintendence of this word, that you would, by your spirit, give us illumination, that our you would give us the ability to understand your word properly, to repent where we need to repent, and to rejoice in the promises we have in Christ. We pray that as we consider Christ as our surety, as our guarantor of a better covenant, that you would speak to us by your Spirit, that we would trust evermore in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last few weeks, we've been considering the comparison, really, between the Levitical priesthood, or the Aaronic priesthood, the Old Covenant priesthood, and the New Covenant priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus, the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. We've been contrasting those two priesthood, priesthoods, and today we're going to continue that contrast. Um, really, this morning, I want to consider one major contrast. It is a contrast that I really want to take time to meditate on because it is such good news to consider. So look with me at Hebrews 7 and verse 22. Hebrews 7 and verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there are three questions that I want to consider this morning really in light of that statement. First, what is this? When it says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, what is this? Second, what is a guarantor? What does that even mean? Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, but what is a guarantor? What does that mean? Why is that helpful to hear? Why is that good news? Third, in what ways is the covenant of which Jesus is the guarantor better? In what ways is it better than the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant that it's being compared to? As these two priesthoods are being compared, so two covenants are being compared. In what ways is Jesus' covenant better than the Mosaic covenant? In what way is the new covenant better than the Mosaic covenant? That's what we're asking. So let's start with the first question. What is this? What is this that makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant? Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 22 again. This makes Jesus. Now what is the this referring to? Well, it's referring back to Hebrews 7 verses 20 through 21. It's referring back there. The obvious point I'm making is that Hebrews 7 verse 22 is bringing out the glorious implication of what's being said in Hebrews 7 verses 20 through 21. If I make a doctrinal argument, um, that argument has implications. I'm really arguing toward those implications. My, my goal is that you see the telos, the end, the purpose of my argument. And Hebrews 7 20 through 21 wants to lead you to the implication in Hebrews 7.22. So let's look at what the this is. Look at Hebrews 7, verses 20 through 21. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
you're a priest forever. Now, as we look at these two verses, I really want you to notice the contrast being made. There's really one great contrast that's being made. There are two priesthoods here being contrasted, and they've been contrasted throughout this chapter. The first priesthood is the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of the Mosaic covenant, the priesthood of the old covenant administration of God's promises given to Abraham and to his offspring. The priests who served in the tabernacle, in other words, the priests who served in the tabernacle and the temple, the priests who offered sacrifices there on behalf of the people, the priesthood that we were told could never perfect God's people. The second priesthood is Christ's priesthood. Christ's priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood of the covenant of grace, the priesthood of the new covenant administration of God's promises to Abraham and to his offspring, the priesthood that does perfect God's people. Covenant administration of God's promises really in his, excuse me, covenant administration of God's promises to Abraham and his people really are being compared in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Christ's priesthood, in other words, is being contrasted to the Mosaic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of the sons of Aaron. Now let's look at that contrast that's between them that's being discussed here. Look at verse 20 and 21 again. And really the second part of verse 20. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In other words, those who formerly became priests, the Levitical priests, were made such. They were made priests without an oath. But this one, Christ, was made priest with an oath. Now, what does that mean? Well, Hebrews is saying that God established Christ in his office as priest in a manner that is different than he established the Levites in their office as priests. Christ was appointed by the word of an oath. The Levites were not appointed in this way. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 28. For the law, the law there is Moses' covenant, the old covenant. The law appoints men in their weakness. Appoints men in their weakness as high priests. Now, in what way are they weak? They were weak in that they were sinners. They were weak in that they died. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, now we really are left to ask a question. What does he mean when he says that the word of the oath came later than the law? Let me tell you first what he does not mean. He does not mean, he does not mean that the father gave the oath to the son historically after the father gave the law to Moses. That's not what he means. He does not mean that after the father saw that the whole arrangement with Moses was not really delivering the goods, if you will. He made a new plan to send the son. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what he's referring to is when, when in history, the word of the oath was revealed to us. 
He's not speaking to when the word of the oath was made, but to when the oath was revealed to us in history. And when was that? Well, look back at Hebrews 7 and verse 21. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The Lord has sworn, that's the oath, and will not change his mind because God cannot change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now that's a quotation from Psalm 110. That's a psalm that's written by King David. So this oath from the father to the son was revealed to King David and given to his people, if you will, the the people of Israel, after the giving of the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. David, in fact, himself was a king during the Old Covenant. And he prophetically tells us that the father made a covenant with the son to send him as the Redeemer, as the High Priest. The Father made a covenant with the Son in eternity past. And when the Father promised this to the Son, the Father swore. He made him a priest with an oath. Now, now why is the oath significant? Because if God swears an oath, then the thing is final for confirmation. The oath demonstrates the nature of God's purpose, that the nature of God's purpose is unchangeable. It is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to change his mind. His um, oath is a purpose that is unchanging, that's confirmed. His oath is like money in the bank. And this oath is revealed to us for our security in the faith, for our assurance. The promise of the Son coming to save us cannot be changed. You see, Moses' covenant was good, but Moses' covenant was temporary. The old covenant priests were good, but they were temporary. The covenant of redemption between the Father and Son is better in that it is permanent inviolable, unbreakable, eternal. And that covenant of redemption that happened in eternity between the Father and the Son was given to us in history as the covenant of grace, a covenant which was also unchangeable, unbreakable, inviolable, eternal. Please hear this. There are two covenants in Scripture that are made with an oath. Two. First, the covenant of redemption made in eternity between the Father and the Son. Now, that's revealed to us, actually, second. But that's the first covenant, if you will, in the sense that that covenant is made before the foundation of the world. Second, the covenant of grace made in history between God and his people. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. You'll see the other oath. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. See, you always swear by something greater. I swear on my mother's grave, or I, I swear on this, or I swear on that. Something that is greater than yourself. But there's nothing greater than God by which he can swear than himself. So he swears by himself. 
he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. See, God covenanted grace to Abraham and to his offspring. He promised to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the central promise of all God's covenants. It is, if you will, the greatest blessing that we can know. In this promise, we get God. We get union and communion with him. He is our God and we are his people. God is our God and we are his people. Every other benefit of the work of Christ serves that glorious end. And God gave this covenant promise to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And God gave this covenant promise with an oath. So this is an inviolable, unbreakable, unchangeable covenant. Abraham and his offspring received the covenant promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. And Abraham's offspring, now catch this, Abraham's offspring is Christ. And all who trust in him or Christ and all the elect. Thus, the words that Christ heard, when Christ heard, if you will, the covenant of redemption, when the Father spoke to him in the covenant of redemption, this is what he said, I will tell of the decree, Psalm 2-7, I will tell the decree or the covenant, the Lord said to me, you are my son. See, I'm your God, you're my people. Today, I have begotten you. Those words the son heard, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In the covenant of redemption, are also the words he heard when he came to ratify, to secure the covenant of grace. What were the words he heard? This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. And friends, when you look to Christ in faith, you're adopted as sons of God in him. You are those to whom God says, I am your God. And you are my people. So it is this oath that makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, now let's turn to our second question. What is, if you will, second question, what is a guarantor? What is a guarantor? What does that mean? Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What's a guarantor? Well, it could also be translated a surety. It makes him a surety of a better covenant. But what's that? Well, the Greek word for surety or guarantor was used in legal documents or, or promissory documents. And, and it stood for one who stands as the security. In other words, he guarantees or secures the promise of that covenant. 
he makes sure that the covenant cannot be annulled, that it cannot be brought to an end. Like, look at Hebrews 7.18. Hebrews 7.18, For on the one hand, a former commandment, that's the Mosaic covenant, a former commandment of the Mosaic covenant is set aside, it's annulled, because it's weakness of its weakness and its uselessness. Because of weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. The law, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, was put aside. It was annulled because it was weak and it was useless. Now, in what way was it weak or useless? It, it was weak or useless in this way, that it could not perfect Christ's people. Look at Hebrews 7.19. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. I don't, I don't know if you heard that language. The law could not secure the goods of the covenant of grace. It could, it could not guarantee them. Moses' covenant could not secure the blessings that only the Son of God, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, and the son of David could secure. Ultimately, Moses' covenant could not secure for us the better hope through which we draw near to God. Moses' covenant could not, in and of itself, guarantee the promise, I will be your God, and you will be my people. It could not, Moses' covenant could not do that because the Son of God, the Messiah, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the son of David, is the only one who could secure that. That is why Jesus is the guarantor, the security, the surety of a better covenant. He is the one, Jesus is the one, who stands as security for all the blessings of the covenant of grace. He made good on what we could not. He made good on what Adam could not. He made good on what Abraham could not, what Israel could not, what we could not. He is the one who lived a perfectly righteous, law-keeping life, tempted in every way, yet without sin. He is the one who atoned for our sins at the cross, who paid the penalty for, that was due to us for our sins. He became the curse for us. He resurrected from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And to him, the Father has covenanted and delivered a kingdom. He reconciles us to God. He is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our peace with God. He poured out the Holy Spirit. He gives us new life. He ever intercedes for us. He holds us in his hand, from which we can never be taken. He keeps us secure to the end. He is the captain of our salvation, who has carried us there with him and anchored us in heaven. He went as our forerunner behind the veil. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. It is in him, in Jesus, by his spirit, that we're adopted as children of God and that we're able to cry out, Abba, Father. He is the one who returned to judge the living and the dead and to resurrect us from the dead. He is the one who will reward us, and he will be 
our great reward. He is our guarantor of a better covenant, our surety. Now, now I've sort of stolen my thunder in answering my third question. But let's look there. In what ways is the covenant of which Jesus is the guarantor better? In what ways is it better? When Hebrews says that the new covenant is a better covenant, this, verse 22, makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. When it says the new covenant is a better covenant, it does not mean that Moses' covenant was a bad covenant. Moses' covenant was good. It was, it was given by God. It was holy and righteous and good. Moses' covenant, though, pointed forward to a better covenant. It pointed forward to Christ and the new covenant. Moses' covenant served a good purpose. The people of God were saved under Moses' covenant. Moses' covenant ministered Christ to them in, in and through types and shadows. But Moses' covenant could never secure the covenant of grace. Moses could never ratify the unchangeable covenant promises given to Christ. Only Christ and the new covenant cut in him at the cross could ratify, confirm, and secure those promises. And Christ ratified that covenant of grace in his blood at the cross. He secured that covenant and those blessings. So his covenant is better. Christ's covenant is better, Hebrews tells us. It tells us his priesthood is better. His sacrifice is better. It's once for all. His promises are better. His hope is better. It's the one through which we draw near to God. His kingdom is better. It cannot be shaken. Now, now what, am I, what I'm about to do, most pastors would say, is not really advisable. I just kind of want to bring home why this covenant is a better covenant. And I want to do it by doing something that, that usually the preaching books, the preaching professors say don't do, which is I, I want to read a long quote from a dead theologian. Now, listen, there are a lot of things we're doing right now that we don't normally do. We don't normally um, have our worship service by you being in family units at home, um, watching a sermon this way. We don't normally do that, so I'm going to break another rule while I'm at it. But here's the rule. I want to read, the, I'm breaking, I want to read a long quote from Wilhelmus Albrockel. Now, Wilhelmus Albrockel was a 17th century Dutch theologian. And I was reading him this week, and I was personally moved as he spoke about 14 benefits in the covenant of grace secured by Christ. And I want you to hear them. Now, I've, I've pared it down, but I want you to hear these 14 benefits. And, and while it's unusual to read you 14 benefits, really everything about this moment is unusual, so, so deal with it. The Hamasa Brockel starts first with seven evils that this covenant delivered us from. Seven evils this covenant delivered us from, and then seven blessings which are given to us in this covenant. So, so listen to what he says. Just, just hear this and let it wash over you. To all who desire to enter into this covenant with him, God promises deliverance from the following seven evils. First, God offers 
as a condition of the covenant, deliverance from all sins. Deliverance from all sins. First, deliverance from all sins. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, saith the Lord, and I will remember their sin no more. Second, God promises deliverance from his wrath. Due to sin, every man is subject to wrath. We were by nature the children of wrath. From this wrath, all partakers of the covenant are fully delivered, which delivered us, really, this covenant delivered us from the wrath to come. So, deliverance, forgiveness of sins. Deliverance from sin, forgiveness of sins. Deliverance from wrath. Third, God promises deliverance from the curse, which is upon every man. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law. God fully removes this curse. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of law of the law, being made a curse for us. Fourth, God promises deliverance from all corporal trials and from death. That is, to the extent that these would harm the partakers of the covenant and not be to their benefit. I will deliver them or redeem them from death. Fifth, God promises deliverance from the power of the devil. Every man by nature is a captive in the snare of the devil at his will. God delivers his own out of the snare by virtue of this covenant to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Sixth, God promises deliverance from the dominion of sin. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Seventh, God promises deliverance from eternal condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. What do you think of these conditions? You who have ever felt what sin, wrath, curse, death, the power of the devil, the dominion of sin, and condemnation are. Are not these matters precious? And are not these conditions worthy of acceptance? Is it actually possible to reject them? However, the Lord was not satisfied merely to deliver those who are in covenant with him from all these evils. He proposes other conditions in which he promises all blessings which can be subservient to the felicity or serve the happiness, if you will, of the partakers of the covenant. So he's saying it's not, it, it didn't satisfy, if you will, God to merely deliver us from sin and evil and Satan death, etc. He also gives seven blessings that really serve our happiness, our felicity. Listen to what he says. First, God offers himself to be the God of a poor, contrite sinner. I will establish my covenant to be a God unto thee. But this shall be the covenant. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Listen to what Abrakel says about this. This is the sum and substance of all true felicity. No one, all true happiness, no one knows what this is, however, except those who enjoy it. This felicity, this happiness, does not consist in receiving a benefit from God, but in having God himself as one's portion. This consists in being 
overshadowed with God's gracious presence, to be surrounded with his supporting and preserving omnipotence, to rest in his unfailing faithfulness, to rejoice in God's eternal fullness, majesty, and glory, to be enlightened by his light, goodness, and love, to be satisfied with his all-sufficiency, to lose oneself in his infinity and incomprehensibility, to bow before him with delight and love, to be subject to him and to worship him. This felicity, this happiness, consists in rendering him honor and glory with heart and tongue and deeds, being conscious of his perfections, and because he is so worthy of this, it consists in fearing him, in serving him, and in a complete and full acquiescence to his will because he is God. This felicity is such that I can, ne- I can neither comprehend it nor can you define it. Rather, we must lose ourselves in its infinity, exclaiming, Hallelujah! Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Second, God's promise to give his spirit to those, God promised to give his spirit to those who are in covenant with him. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and I will put my spirit within you. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And because you are sons of God, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Third, God offers his friendship, which is as intimate as between a father and his children. By virtue of this covenant, Abraham was called the friend of God. Christ says of his disciples, you are my friends. Fourth, God offers peace. Great shall be the peace of thy children. This is peace with God, with angels, and with one's conscience. The person is in such a frame as if all of creation were at peace with him. The sweetness of this frame is such that it cannot be expressed as it passes all understanding. It is a foretaste of heaven, for the kingdom of heaven is peace. Fifth, God offers sanctification, including all its elements, such as illumination. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. But this shall be the covenant, they shall all know me. Life, my covenant was with him of life. Truth, I will direct their worth and their their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Freedom, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Willingness, the people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauty of holiness. Joining together everything, really, or everything together, godliness, faith, hope, love, godly fear, obedience, humility, meekness, wisdom, but this shall be the covenant I will make. I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it on their hearts. A new heart also I will give to you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Sixth, God himself guarantees that he shall preserve those who are in covenant with him in the state of grace and friendship, so that neither they themselves nor any creature shall be able to rob them of it. The certainty of the state of the partakers of the covenant is not dependent upon them, for they would fall from such certainty 100 times a day. 
The Lord himself promises that he will never forsake or reject them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. How sure and steadfast is the state of that person who may be in covenant with God. Such a person can confidently say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Seventh, or finally, as a condition of this covenant, God offers eternal felicity or happiness. And I appoint, and when he says appoint, by way of covenant or testament, unto you a kingdom, as my Father has appointed to me, and I give unto them eternal life. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We have thus, here's how Abrakel ends, we have thus presented to you the articles of the covenant. Consider these 14 articles together and determine now whether there is one article which does not suit you and which you would wish to be deleted. Consider whether there isn't something you would wish in addition to this. In doing so, you will discover that the perfection and glory of this covenant excels anything that all men together would have devised or dared to request. Is it not sufficient to be delivered from all the evil to which we are subject, and instead to eternally enjoy complete felicity? Does it not sufficiently motivate you to acquiesce fully in a resolution to enter into this covenant with God? Sovereign Grace, Jesus is the surety, the guarantor, the security of this better covenant. So we look to Jesus. We put our trust in Jesus. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is our surety. He is our guarantor. He is our security. In his name alone will we trust. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to trust your son as the surety, the guarantor of the better covenant. We give thanks, Father, that you covenanted with your son before the foundation of the world to send him as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That you decreed that he is priest. We're thankful, Father, that you in history began that covenant when we fell into sin, promising to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, and that you progressively revealed that, opening it up to us more and more, as that was carried out in history, this covenant of grace in which you are God and we are your people, in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and which we are delivered from all of our sins, from all evil, from Satan, sin, suffering, and death in the ultimate sense, And we are blessed with complete felicity 
all the blessings that come with being those who are your people. We're thankful that this is true in your son. We pray that your spirit would be at work in us, driving those things into our hearts and minds so that we might look to him, trust in him, repent before him, find joy in him, and by the working of your spirit, be made more like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.